0: we read two passages of Scripture this evening in connection with Lord's Day 4. The first passage is Jonah 4, and the second passage, just a few pages later, is Nahum 1. So we first turn to Jonah chapter 4, and then to Nahum chapter 1. And what God gives us in these two chapters is the contrast between God's mercy and God's justice. Lord's Day 4 sets forth that relationship between God's justice and God's mercy and we see that here displayed in God's attitude toward Nineveh. We read Jonah chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. We should maybe read verse 10 of chapter 3 to get the context here. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them And he did it not, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee my life from me, For it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head, to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die. And he said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right and hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. So we have there an expression of God's mercy and compassion toward the Ninevites. Now we turn to Nineveh, to Nahum, chapter 1. And we read chapter 1 of Nahum. The burden of Nineveh. This is written about 120 years later, after Jonah. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. And drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, They shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep the solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. In connection with those passages and many others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 4, found on page 4 in the back of our Psalters. Question and answer 9. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and by his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means. But is terribly displeased with our original, as well as actual sins, and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally, as he hath declared, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with a stream that is with everlasting punishment of body and soul beloved in our lord jesus christ the question that we face in this lord's day continuing from the previous is this is there any escape for sinners the book of nahum addresses nineveh and would say no god is furious he's filled with anger he will not acquit the wicked verses 2 and 3. The book of Jonah also addressed to Nineveh some 120 years previous teaches God is merciful. God is willing to forgive. How do we understand that seeming contrast? The Bible always presents God's justice and God's mercy alongside one another and teaches that God's mercy is always revealed in the way of his justice being satisfied. God would show mercy upon Nineveh because God knew that he had his children there and there were some who were covered with the blood of Jesus who hadn't even yet come. But God at the same time expresses his wrath and his anger toward all those who are his enemies. The focus of this Lord's Day is on the justice of God. Is God fair in demanding hell for mankind? Mankind has fallen. Is it just of God? Is it fair for God to say, all those who have fallen deserve death and hell? This isn't something that we ordinarily would talk about. We would prefer to just talk about the mercy of God, not the justice of God. But the justice of God is necessary for us to discuss in order to understand the possibility of God's mercy. We will never know mercy without understanding God's justice and the necessity of God's justice being satisfied. You know how things go when you get forced in a corner. You've done something, you've been caught red-handed, and you've got the cookie jar, so to speak, in your hands. And so you try to defend yourself you try to make excuses they left the cookie jar sitting there in plain sight what could be expected of me than that I would eat a few of them we try to make up excuses for the fact that we haven't really done anything wrong and there's a natural defensiveness that rises up within us that's what we're doing here in Lord's Day 4 we're on the offensive God has caught us he's exposed our sin He's revealed the fact that we're sinners and there's no way of escape. And we're trying now to say, no, but, but it's not fair of God to punish me for something that I couldn't help. I was a sinner. I couldn't do anything but sin. We're saying, but God is the one who's to blame for my disobedience and my rebellion." And then we try to deny maybe the fact that he really will punish me. We say, but God, he's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's not really going to punish me. He won't really come down that hard on me. Beloved, the grace of God directs us to see the truth concerning ourselves and the truth concerning God. God is just in requiring of the sinner satisfaction. And the only way of escape is through the wonder of the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ. By nature, we're not sorry for our sins. We seek to find a way that we can retain our sin and still be saved. That's what we want to do. I want to continue in my sin, but I still want to know and be assured of salvation. There's, by nature, no humility, no sorrow for sin. We become hardened in sin. We hate and we dread the punishment of sin. And we like to think that maybe God will change His demand. That God won't Maintain that law so harshly that God will relax his judgment a bit and he'll have mercy on me. This Lord's Day focuses on the necessity of God's justice being satisfied in order that there be mercy. Here in Jonah and Nahum, we see God's justice and God's mercy. And we see the wonder of the gospel as God works repentance and faith in the hearts of some in Jesus Christ. God didn't have to save Nineveh, when Jonah came preaching, but God in his love and in his mercy had determined that there was a people there through whom Jesus Christ would be glorified in bringing them to repentance. True conviction of sin brings us before the judgment seat of God with a deep sense of humiliation. We're humbled. We know that we deserve everlasting death. But God in his mercy has punished Jesus in our place. He was my substitute. And we acknowledge the seriousness of God's justice. God's justice demands punishment. And it's so serious that I deserve to die everlastingly in hell. But I cry out to God for refuge. And I find my refuge in the wonder of the cross. And beloved, the deeper the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the more... We discard all our excuses and we seek to humble ourselves before him and acknowledge the wonder of his love in Jesus Christ. We look at that this evening, the justice of God, noting God's demand, the justice of God's wrath, and God's mercy. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? We've looked at aspects of that question before. The point of the catechism again has been God made man perfect. God made man able to obey. And so now we can't blame God for the fact that we're totally depraved in our natures and we have no ability to please him whatsoever. What is it that God insists on? God insists on perfect, undivided love. He wants us to love him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul. We noted that in the quote previously that we saw in Lord's Day 2 from Matthew 22. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And that's the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God wants total, absolute love and obedience from us. And we've seen we can't do that. We're inclined by nature to hate God and the neighbor. So the question is this, is God unjust in demanding of us something that we can't do? We're admitting we're sinful. We can't maintain perfectly God's will. But instead of being humble in the face of our sin and the consequence of our fall, we're suggesting the fault is with God. It's with its unfair treatment of me. God is requiring of me something I'm not capable of doing. He wants perfection from me. And I'm sinful. I'm depraved. I'm incapable of that perfection. Now, beloved, this is a normal reality of life. We want flexibility. We're flexible in our dealing with others, and we want others to be flexible with us. For instance, we need to be at time. On time at work tomorrow but if something happens to us that we land in the hospital and we have then something serious taking place we have the assurance that our boss is going to understand he's not going to take issue with the fact that we aren't at work on time because we're in the hospital and we experience some serious health issue we understand that kind of flexibility We take into account the circumstances of life and the fact that in different circumstances, demands are going to change. Expectations may differ given the various circumstances that take place. And our life involves that constantly. Constantly in life, there's changing demands, changing circumstances, and it requires of us, so to speak, to roll with the punches and to be flexible at times with one another. Here's the question now Could that be true of God also? That God will be flexible with me. That God had one demand perhaps prior to the fall, but now after the fall, God is going to be a little bit more flexible with regard to that demand. He's not going to require me anymore that I have to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and love the neighbor as myself. Ought not God change his demand due to the fact of what's taken place? Is not God unjust if he's not going to be flexible toward me? Those are the thoughts that are coming out here and the thoughts that reflect our own minds. To attribute or to expect such flexibility from God is an attack on God. It's an attack on who God is. The scripture directs us to the beginning, to paradise, and shows us your sin, my sin, is not God's fault. God made us good. Man, by the instigation of the devil, fell into sin. And therefore, our sin is our fault. Adam represented us, and we sinned in Adam. Now we understand the validity of this answer. We can maybe change it a bit. You students say, face a test tomorrow. But you took terrible notes. You can't even read the notes that you took. You were too busy yesterday. You didn't even spend any time studying. So now tomorrow, you come to school and you receive that test and you don't know the answers. Whose fault is it? Is it the teacher's fault? Or is it your fault? You know the answer. It's your fault. You should have taken better notes. You should have paid better attention. You should have spent some time preparing yourself. For you to rise up in school tomorrow and to say to the teacher, I'm not going to do good on this test, but it's your fault because my notes are really bad and because I didn't have time to prepare or study, would be unjust. The teacher is not expected to water down the test because of our limitations and because of our sins. We deliberately refused to learn, we refused to be faithful and now we have to suffer the consequences of that refusal. It's difficult in situations like that for a teacher to stand his or her ground. It's difficult for a teacher to refuse to be flexible and to say, no, this is what's required of you. Flexibility is attractive. We don't like people who are inflexible. Who are rigid. We want them to bend. We want them to give in. And again, we want a God who would do the same. And the idea of God being flexible then is deeply ingrained, not only in our natures, but in contemporary Christianity. We want a God of our own imagination. We want a God who understands and takes into account all of the difficulties of the circumstances of our life. We want a God who changes his demands with regard to us given the various circumstances in which we find ourselves. A God who understands that I'm not going to discipline my children consistently in every situation because I don't have time and I don't feel like it sometimes. A God who can understand the pressure I have at work who understands and won't mind then if I use Sunday to catch up on sleep and other things that I've not been able to do because of the demands of work through the week. We want a God who's tolerant of my sin, tolerant of my weakness, especially when things get really difficult in my life. Beloved, that attempt to try to make God flexible, again, is a denial of God's justice and a denial of God. God is God. And God will not lower His expectation to meet our standards and our low bar. God maintains His high bar. Love me. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love the neighbor as thyself. And God's unchanging demand is that which is required for His glory. God is God. And God demands that he must be maintained and his will must be pursued. Our expectation for this kind of flexibility is nothing less than a denial of God's being. God did not change his demands. God is an unchangeable God. And God demands that he remains the same from the beginning throughout the end of time. And God's demands don't change as we get older. They don't change through the course of our lives. They remain the same. Now, that doesn't mean that God is indifferent toward his people. God is a God of love. But God made man perfect. God demands obedience. And man is guilty. And man is responsibility. And responsible. And for us to demand also of parents, of those in authority, flexibility in circumstances where we are guilty is unjust. We have to take ownership of our sin, our rebellion. God's unchanging justice is good. That's the teaching of the book of Nahum. God is God. And Jehovah God demands punishment for sin. And God now sends Nahum to speak to the Ninevites. And to not pull any punches, to lay out clearly God's justice and God's wrath. Now again, this doesn't mean that God's indifferent toward his people. God's a God of love and faithfulness toward his own, even as a father pities his children. God's faithfulness to his own justice is the ground and certainty of our salvation. Rather than making an idol of God, we confess God is just in his demand. And God is just in his wrath towards sinners. God's judgment toward the rebellious sinner is that that sinner is worthy of death and hell. One sin makes us worthy of death and hell. And again, that's humbling. We stand before the justice and the demand of God. Love me. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we acknowledge, I've not done that. And because I've not done that, I'm now guilty and I stand condemned before the tribunal of God. The catechism reflecting again, the teaching of Scripture, makes clear God's judgment is the same in time as in eternity. God doesn't change. There's no room for a distinction to say, well, God expects one thing in time, but then with regard to eternity, God has a different demand. God does not assume, for instance, a favor of love, compassion, pity on all men while they're alive, and then as soon as they die, sends them to hell. That would be a two-faced God. That would be a God who is not demonstrating the fact that he is the same from everlasting to everlasting. He's unchangeable. His wrath is a present reality that continues to all eternity with regard to those who are unrepentant sinners. His just judgment is being executed constantly. Now that's horrible to think about. Apart from Jesus Christ and the wonder of salvation in him, one is under the wrath of God all his or her life. And that just judgment is evident in the prosperity of the wicked. We can stumble in that. We think, but look, Look how good the wicked have it. God says, no, that's not evidence of the fact that I'm showing kindness or love or compassion toward them. God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7 verse 11 teaches that. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all wickedness and unrighteousness. The prophets make that explicit. Romans 1 verse 18 emphasizes that truth God's face is against all them that do evil and God doesn't change his perspective God's wrath is revealed in different ways God's wrath is revealed through the misery the suffering that's associated with specific sins if you engage in sexual sins there's going to be consequences that God has ordained that serve then as an expression of misery and suffering in connection with those sins. God, in His just judgment, causes some sins to result in sickness or death. God unleashes His fierce anger in that way upon those who are continuing in those sins. And God brings them down to destruction as a result of their own iniquity, their own wickedness. God judges sinners also in this way. He gives them over to more sin. You start lying once in a while. You start swearing and cursing once in a while. God starts giving you over to it. Pretty soon you're lying every day. Pretty soon you're lying even more often during the course of the day. Pretty soon you're swearing all the time. Pretty soon you can't hardly talk without cursing and swearing. God gives sinners over to their sin. And those sins begin to consume them until those men become worse than animals giving them over to their lusts, giving them over to become sodomites. Romans 1, again making clear, that judgment of God upon the wicked. The wicked want to sin? God says, go ahead. And he gives them over to those horrible sins that bring about then tragedy, devastation in their life while on earth and everlasting damnation after they die. Death is the enemy that's pursuing the wicked all the time to destroy them and bring them to the final expression of God's wrath that comes on sinners. All men live in the midst of death, experience sickness, pain, sorrow, daily incidents that remind us of the certainty of that judgment. And God alone provides a way out. There is no way of escape apart from Jesus Christ. The only way out of that wrath of God is the wonder of the grace of God in giving us one who stood in our place and took upon himself the wrath that we deserve. God's wrath is revealed then when sinners continue in sin without disrupting their lives, without correcting them. They continue unrepentantly in sin. They become ensnared in that sin. And more and more that sin now rules their lives. And the whole of their walk and conduct is governed by that sin. That's an expression of God's wrath. Beloved, be thankful for God's mercy in exposing our sin. Be thankful for God's mercy in bringing us so that we're confronted with that sin, so that we're brought to confess it, so that we're able to turn away from it, so that that sin does not continue to hold us in its fierce grip. Be thankful for the wonder of God's grace toward his children. But God's wrath is just. And eternal punishment ultimately is demanded by God in his justice. The soul that sins, that soul must die and punish everlastingly. The Bible clearly teaches that eternal punishment throughout its pages. The everlasting nature of that punishment is emphasized. And again... This isn't something pleasant. This is something that we recoil against. But we read, for instance, here in Nahum, God's wrath. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can abide the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire. Rocks are thrown out by Him. God, in His just judgment, sends men then to everlasting destruction in hell. Matthew 25 is an outstanding chapter that teaches that reality. Jesus there is giving an account of the end and the final judgment and the reality of the separation that's going to take place with regard to mankind. And on the one hand, there's going to be the sheep who are separated. The other hand are the goats. The goats are those who are wicked. The goats are cast off into everlasting damnation where there's weeping and wailing. The sheep are brought into everlasting life to be with God in glory. The words that are used there for the time frame are the same. Those who experience everlasting life are contrasted with those who spend an eternity in hell. The wrath of God is not a passing emotion like human emotion. One is angry for a time and then pretty soon one gets over it. That's not the case with regard to To God. God's anger is constant. It's the reaction of his holiness over against sin and sinners. And when the wicked trample underfoot his justice, his goodness, they refuse to be thankful, they refuse to give him glory, they will spend an eternity in hell as payment. And that eternity will yet never be enough to accomplish the satisfaction of God's anger and God's wrath. Again, we tremble before that reality. Hell is horrible. We cannot deny the reality of hell. The Bible is abundantly clear. God's love for himself and for his holiness demands justice. And that wrath of God then is realized in a curse. That curse is contrasted with a blessing. And again here in these passages, we see that curse and blessing side by side. The curse is the opposite of the blessing. Both are the almighty word that God speaks. Blessing is a word that God speaks in his favor, his love, his care, his tenderness toward his children. Curse is a word that God speaks toward the ungodly reprobates in his constant eternal wrath. Now sometimes as we read through the Old Testament, we read through the prophets, we can become confused because we hear both in the same chapter Maybe even in the same verse, maybe one verse wrath, one verse cursing, the next verse blessing. And so we become confused. How is it? And sometimes it's hard to figure out what is going on here in this passage. But we understand that the blessings of God's word are to his elect remnant, those who are in Christ. The curse is to those who are outside of Christ. And we understand then more fully God's justice and God's wrath. And what's the only difference? The only difference is the fact that some are covered with the blood of Christ and others are not. The only difference is Christ. For instance, in Nahum here, in chapter 1, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation, who can abide the fierceness of his anger, his fury is poured out. We have God's wrath Toward those who are unregenerate, wicked. And then what do we have in verse 7? What a beautiful verse. In the midst of all of the negative, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. God knows you, he knows the faith that is evident in your heart, he knows that you're putting trust in him. And so, in the day of trouble, when you're experiencing hardship and trials and afflictions, you can have this assurance God is good. He's your stronghold. He's your pillar. He's your fortress. He's the one that's going to hold and keep you. Why? What's the difference between the fact that he's good and his wrath is being poured out? He's looking at me in Christ. He's not looking at me as I am of myself. It's a word that brings not only misery and wrath now, but to all eternity upon the unrighteous. And a word that brings comfort and peace and joy now and to all eternity for those who are found in Christ. But the Bible makes clear this, there is no escape apart from Christ. There's no place for pride. There's no place to rise up in pride over against the unrighteous and the sinners. We humble ourselves. There's no room for pride to rise up over against others who have sinned. The only possibility of our forgiveness is a wonder of God's grace. We know that we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. But God has shown mercy in Jesus Christ. And God gives us to know then that hope and that wonder. And that we finally look at, God's mercy. God is indeed merciful, but also just. Jonah acknowledged that mercy in a number of places in Jonah chapter 4. In verse 2 we read, He prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I pled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. You children remember the story. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah does not want to go to those who are outside of the realm of God's people. And Jonah has a number of, we would say, bad attitudes. Jonah does not want to see sinners being brought to repentance, especially not if they're Ninevites. Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. It was the capital of Syria. And the Israelites hated Syria. Jonah now is commanded by God to go to Nineveh. He tries not to. You remember, God intervenes, sailors have to throw him in the water with a great storm, a fish, great fish, swallows him, spits him back on shore, and now Jonah obeys. But what's Jonah afraid of? Here Jonah acknowledges he was afraid that God might just show mercy to the Ninevites. Now rather than a missionary going and preaching the gospel to this huge city and having The majority of the city repent and being thrilled with the wonder of God's grace and God's mercy, Jonah is bitter. Jonah wishes that God wouldn't have shown mercy. And we see the pride on Jonah's part. What right does Jonah think that he has to feel himself superior over the Ninevites? What right do I have or you have to feel ourselves superior over any other sinners? What right do we have to not desire God's mercy to be shown toward others? But that was Jonah's concern. God is a merciful God. It just may be that God will show mercy. And sure enough, what does God do? He works sorrow. He works grief in the hearts of the Ninevites. Why? Because God had his children there. Why was Jonah sent there? Because God had his elect children in Nineveh. And his elect children needed to hear the gospel as it would be preached and proclaimed through the judgments that Jonah brought. And God showed mercy. Verse 11. Should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score, that is 120,000 persons, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. So over 120,000 little children We can't even imagine how big this city was. God had mercy, and God spares Nineveh. Now, we like this, and our sinful nature clings to this side of God in the hope that God won't look very seriously at my sin. After all, look what God did to Nineveh. God spared Nineveh. My misery is not that great after all, because God's going to abundantly pardon But we can never play God's justice over against God's mercy in the sense that God's justice gets swallowed up by God's mercy so that there's no penalty for sin. The mercy of God is never a mercy without His justice being satisfied. The penalty of sin must be paid. God does not, for instance, become merciful because He sees how pitiful man's state is that's how we can be we see how bad someone has it and right away we're inclined toward mercy that's not the way in which God's mercy is shown God does not become merciful because of anything that a person has done it's not because I did something or made myself worthy therefore now God is merciful God is the merciful one as revealed in Jesus Christ and already from the very beginning we know before even God created the world Who did he have in mind? He had Christ. So that all things were created for Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ in order that God would, through Jesus Christ, bring to himself a people whom he would deliver and save by a wonder of his grace. And so God displays that mercy through the pages of the Bible. Already in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. God saves according to his abundant sovereign mercy through the good and through his good pleasure and through the execution of his righteousness. Now what does righteousness mean? God, justice must be satisfied. The soul that sins, that soul must die. And God declared his justice would be satisfied only then with Jesus standing in the place of those whom he represented and taking on himself the punishment that they deserved. And God declared that that justice was realized when Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised for our justification, according to Romans 4, verse 25. God's mercy runs its course then only in the way of God's justice being satisfied. This is why the Bible teaches that Zion is redeemed through judgment. The church is saved only in the way of judgment. And what judgment is that? It's the judgment of God that comes upon His own beloved Son in order that His Son might bear the wrath that we deserve. Why is it again that God showed mercy, compassion to the Ninevites? Because God had His elect children in Nineveh. In Nineveh were those whom God had chosen from all eternity and on whom He had set His love. And God chose to punish His own Son with the sins that his elect people had committed even though Jesus had not yet come in the Old Testament the promise is set before God's people and God's people laid hold on that promise the promise of the coming of the Messiah the promise of salvation through his shed blood and God saves his children God could not simply take the Ninevites to himself and pretend they had done nothing. The fact that God sends Jesus acknowledges man's depravity. And it imagines, it, it acknowledges the seriousness of what debt we owe before God. The only way God could accomplish that justification is the death of his own son, his own beloved son. One who is very God and very man, who would take upon himself that burden of wrath that we deserve. The book of Nahum places God's justice and God's mercy side by side. In many passages and verses here, we have the expression of God's justice. God is jealous. The Lord revenges. Verse two: The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. The rocks are thrown down by him. God's justice. And then as we noted, God's mercy. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in him. Again, continuing, God's wrath being poured out, the struggles. And then, O Jerusalem, keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He's utterly cut off. Why is God speaking these words of judgment to the wicked? As expressions of love to Judah. Judah, don't be afraid. Don't be concerned. I'm destroying your enemies. And the destruction of your enemies is evidence of my love for you and my care for you and my provision of your needs. God's mercy is a just mercy. God shows his mercy in the way of judgment. There's no way out, beloved, for us by nature. We're subject to death, to damnation, to hell. But Christ took our death, our sin, our punishment upon him. We experience the shame, the guilt of sin. Jesus took our shame. He took our guilt upon himself. And salvation, then, is all of the Lord. God is merciful to us through Jesus Christ alone. God, so to speak, cuts a hole through the dark clouds and He performs a wonder of wonders for us, giving us to know the victory that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ cringed under the weight of the wrath of God. If anyone was ever miserable, it was him as he hung suspended between heaven and earth. Rejected of God, rejected of men. Tormented by the horrible pain that God consumed him with. That was wrath. And that's what you and I deserve because of our sin. Christ made sin in our place that he might make satisfaction on our behalf. And notice the beautiful words. In our place in our stead, for us, on our behalf. Beloved, that's the gospel. We sinners cling to the wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ, and we thank God for His mercy, and we embrace one another in love, celebrating the wonder of that mercy. God's wrath is not minimized. God's wrath is fully satisfied in Jesus Christ for those who are found in Him. And we hear then the call, the command that God sounds forth to every man, woman, and child. Repent. Turn from your sin. Cling to Jesus Christ alone as the one in whom there is salvation. And by God's grace, we cling to that marvelous mercy, God's justice, fully satisfied. My sins will not be held against me. They've been forgiven. I don't have to fear eternal damnation. Jesus took it upon himself. And for me now, there is covenant love. There is mercy to all eternity. We hear the marvelous words from Nahum. I will afflict thee no more. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, We thank and praise Thee for the wonder of Thy goodness and Thy mercy toward us sinners. May we know the love with which Thou hast loved us in Jesus Christ. May we put away the excuses, put away the sinful attempts to try to minimize our sinfulness. And may we lay hold by faith on the wonder of the cross, confessing that our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. In Him, there is mercy, a mercy that is everlasting. Amen.